This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is Danny Bennington, who at 33, with three small children, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Six years later, surgery caused her to enter early menopause, and now she is a leading voice in the cancer and menopause conversation, taking the issue to parliament and facilitating dialogue between top NHS officials and the pharma industry. Danny's story has been featured by ITV's This Morning, The Times, and Glamour Magazine, to name a few, and she is also a qualified yoga teacher. Danny, welcome to Give Me Strength. How are you today? Hi, Alice. I'm really well and I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And um, I'm just really looking forward to hearing your story. I think that we hear a lot about kind of menopause separately, cancer separately, but actually it's going to be really interesting for you to kind of marry those two subjects together and talk about your combined experience with both of them. But I guess I really want to start off by asking you about um, your breast cancer diagnosis, if that's okay. Um, as I mentioned in your introduction, you were diagnosed at a really young age. You know, I would say 33 for me is like 
blimey, like that's that's really young. And, you know, when I was reading stats before I came on here, it was, I think, around 10,000 cases of women are diagnosed each year uh, under the age of 50. So um, it's a pretty high number and, and higher than I actually thought it was. So I would really un- like to understand how that diagnosis came about, how that happened and and what that journey was like for you. Mm. And I did feel really lonely actually when it happened because I also didn't know anyone else that had cancer at that young age. And I was just sitting and watching the television and I had a grope in my armpit like so many people do. And there it was, it was a lump, it felt bigger than a cherry and it was really quite there. It was just under my armpit. And at that point I thought, how had I missed it? Like I have a shower every day, I wash. But suddenly it was there and I'm quite proactive when it comes to health. So I did take myself to the doctors. It did take quite a while for it to be diagnosed. And I was so sure it wasn't going to be anything that I went and took myself to the appointment with the diagnosis on my own. So my husband and my three kids were at home. I told my mum and my dad and everyone not to worry, it's going to be nothing. There was no way I thought I could deal with a cancer diagnosis at that age. Our twins were only two. They were born prem. So we had three really young children at home. My eldest daughter was four. And I just didn't think I was going to ever cope, but it was cancer. It was a very aggressive type of breast cancer. And then life was really happening to me and to us as a family. I didn't feel I had control, especially over the first year of active treatment. I was just doing as I was told and I was just trying to survive and we were just trying to get through and I was really lucky to have a great family and it's really hard. Both can really coexist. I am interested in the kind of the hereditary aspect of of breast cancer. I wondered whether you had it in your family, whether you knew that there was maybe a prevalence of it, or whether this actually just took you completely by shock. Because I know that there are sort of different types of breast cancer and and the ways in which it can manifest. And I wondered, was this something that you were maybe preempted about, or you knew to look out for, or was this a complete shock? Yeah, it was a complete shock. But now looking back, knowing all the things I know. It shouldn't have been such a complete shock and maybe I should have been a bit more educated. So we had lots of ovarian cancer on my dad's side of the family. But because it was my dad's side of the family, me and my mum always thought I was going to be safe because it's on dad's side of the family. And we kind of thought we had a lot of pain in the family. We lost a lot of amazing women far too early, but we kind of thought I was going to be safe. And so it was a huge shock. And I was actually the first one in our family to get tested for a genetic mutation. And I'm a carrier for a genetic mutation. But it's really important to say here that even if people are listening to this and they've got, we all know someone with cancer, and even if cancer is in their family, the uh, percentage of people diagnosed with cancer where it's hereditary is very, very low. It's just a few percent. And so we mustn't let that worry us. What's most Mm. important is to just stay body aware and think, I'm going to just look out for my own body. How does it feel? Do I notice any changes or not? And act on that and not let other people's stories worry you. Because I know as a cancer patient, you meet other people, you hear other people talk and their stories sometimes might worry you. Yeah, I think that's such a really good point to make. And I'm really glad that you said that because I think that regardless of genetics, hereditary stuff, um, you know, one of the things that we should all be conscious of, I guess, is is what is our normal? It's a conversation that I've had with many people that I've spoken to in, in and amongst the cancer space, both on the podcast and off, is, is just familiarizing yourself with what is normal for me, what feels normal. I know that, for example, with me, my boobs change across a month, across a monthly cycle, and there are all these fluctuations. And I've sort of become accustomed to knowing, okay, this is what it feels like at this time and at this time. And, and just understanding that um, 
what's normal for me might not be normal for you, might not be normal for the next person. So, you know, familiarizing yourself with what feels normal to you and then being able to self-advocate, I guess, if something doesn't feel right. And I guess for you, that was being quite proactive in saying, this doesn't feel normal for me. This is out of my ordinary. I'm going to go in there for get advice on what I should be doing about it. And if it's anything that I should be concerned about. And I think that's quite a nice pathway and a route to really think about it in a proactive way rather than a worrisome way. Yeah. And because what we're really talking about is change. Life throws so many changes at us. And my huge change wasn't actually my cancer diagnosis. My huge change was my first sort of when my foundation really shook was when my baby twins were born too early and they were in hospital for two months. And I suddenly thought, oh my gosh, this might go either way. And then two years later, the big cancer diagnosis came. And again, my foundations of what I thought life would be like for me altered. My path got totally altered. And then, of course, the internal changes, my physical changes, my letting go of my breasts, my letting go of my ovaries, more changes to do with my physical body. And so suddenly, and most of us, whether that is a health diagnosis, whether that is a financial problem, whether that is a relationship crisis, we navigate change in lots of different ways. And on top of that one change come so many other ways that would change our lives because of it. And it's like, how the heck do we make sense of that? How do we move through it? And how do we, I guess, find a new identity? Because big change really breaks us apart. I always felt like I was this jigsaw puzzle that someone just mashed up and I had all these thousands of broken bits and I was slowly starting to rebuild my house. And I think up to Today, I don't feel like every single piece is still in its right place. It's I'm back together, don't get me wrong. And some of the pieces might even fit better than before. But some pieces, I wonder if they're still missing or just been misplaced. You know, when you try and put a jigsaw piece and you know it's not going to fit, but you're trying to force it in there, I sometimes feel a bit like that still. <laughs> I love that analogy because I think that is how some of us can be when we have this like life-altering thing happen to us, whatever that might be for someone. It does feel like you've kind of been mashed into a million pieces and you've suddenly got to have the answer as to how you put that together. And I know my my dad's a massive fan of puzzles and every year he'll have like one out on the, on the, on the like, dining room table and I'll go home and I'll just stare at it and I'll be like how does anyone even begin to start putting this back together so you know in a metaphorical sense I can imagine that you know feeling that feeling of I need to somehow just slowly start to rebuild myself must have been really hard I want to I guess touch on one of those really key changes and one of the things that we um I guess covered in the introduction which is that you know we hear a lot more now about the topic of menopause it is becoming more mainstream rightfully so and brilliantly so. Um, but I guess we're probably hearing less from those voices whose menopause was brought about through medical reasons. Um, I'd love to hear more about this side of your cancer journey, um, your experience with what kind of having a medically induced menopause was like and how you found yourself navigating that journey alongside such a huge diagnosis and, 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 and like you said, a life-altering shift, big change in your life. Mm. And so my menopause question came a few years after my initial cancer diagnosis and that was really good because after my cancer diagnosis, you were one of the people I followed and that is, yeah, we're talking 10 years ago and I really threw myself into healthy eating, yoga because became such a haven for me and it almost gave me the security that I was able to regulate some of my feelings of anxiety. And so I became a yoga teacher. I practice it every single 
week still. It's absolutely one of my go-to um, tools. Um, I did a nutrition course to help me more with my food and my diet. I went to counseling. I did crazy things, hypnotherapy. I didn't leave a stone unturned. And so when I had to make the decision to let go of my ovaries, to reduce my risks of ovarian cancer, because we've got that family um, gene, I felt quite an empowered patient. I felt my jigsaw puzzle looked all right. I had my pieces back in order. I knew how to navigate the NHS. All of my care was on the NHS. I had amazing care. At that point, I had navigated a double mastectomy. That was a big thing at the age of 35, deciding to let go of your boobs. And so I thought I'm going to, the way I've handled everything, I'm going to do and apply the same to then managing menopause as a 39-year-old woman. And I was absolutely dumbfounded because there was nothing out there that really taught me of how to navigate menopause after cancer. I looked to all of my trusted sites, you know, Macmillan, Breast Cancer Now, um, websites in America, oncology, resources, thinking, surely someone needs to help me now. But once you've had a history of cancer, the sort of narrative out there is, well, you might not be able to have hormone replacement therapy. And that's kind of the end of the conversation maybe live a healthy lifestyle, maybe eat well, exercise, but no more. And I thought, well, that's very odd because I'm five years on, I felt this empowered patient and there was nothing I could find. And it was really, really quite difficult and very lonely. Again, there was no one. I I don't didn't even know about my mother's story because my mum doesn't really talk much. It was very much a put up with it and did it really happen? I've got a grand still, she's in her 90s and she's so well, she can't even remember <laughs> going through the menopause. And so I couldn't really look to role models. And although I also celebrate the conversation that is out there, much of it, and rightly so, is focused on hormone replacement therapy. And when that might be contraindicated or in question, or you don't even have a medical professional giving you your answers, whether it's a possibility for you or not, it feels very isolating. But I did knock on many people's doors. I think my main transformation was when I realized I could become the difficult patient. I call her the empowered patient. We don't need to be rude. We don't need to be forceful. We don't need to be you know, demanding of anything, but just knowing what our medical options are and that there is help and that we can get to see a menopause specialist who deals with gorgeous, complex cases, because we've all got different medical histories, and mine just wasn't as straightforward. And so I really stopped my surgery actually twice um, from happening. I was really reluctant to go into surgical menopause before having had advice from a specialist of how to manage that. And so I think that was really my wake up thinking, gosh, if it was that hard for me where I felt really empowered, how do people navigate that are really frightful of phoning their doctor because they think the NHS is so busy anyway for people that don't want to phone twice and just get dropped off lists. And I thought this was really a big awakening for me. And, and ever since then, that's a good five years ago now, not a single week has gone by where I wasn't really feeling outraged at the lack of care and the lack of support there is for women in general, but also for the women in my community. That is so interesting. And, and I guess really disappointing to hear that there wasn't that support there for you. And I guess that's what's led to you that doing all the work and campaigning that you currently do. You mentioned in the, the answer that you pushed back on your surgery twice. What was the, I guess, deciding factor in you then 
agreeing to go ahead with it? What kind of brought you to the place of being at peace with that decision and knowing what the after might look like? Was there a particular care operative that, that you were under that helped yeah. you? Or what did that look like? I So the care is there. It's really important to say the care is there. And I now really want to empower everyone to go and look for that care and get on waiting lists, however long they are. It's just no one told me about it. My GP didn't really know. And there is kind of like no pathway at the moment of how to manage menopause after cancer diagnosis. And my missing piece was really for a specialist doctor to A, talk me through my options, but also for me to know this person is there should I need to go back and should I have questions? Because I've heard from so many women who became suicidal, who really felt there was hardly any point of going on. A very good friend of mine, Diane, she really wanted to just almost drove her car off the road because her suicidal thoughts were so intrusive after her surgically onset menopause. And that's just her experience. But I was worried about that and I didn't want that to become my future as well. And so I just wanted... A hand holding Alice, nothing else mm. than a medical professional holding my hand and saying, okay, you can come back to us should you have any questions. And maybe not, and maybe yes. And I also knew my long-term health, like I was on the path to surviving then. I had faith that I could turn 40. I had faith, you know, I'd seen my children. My biggest fear was always not to see my kids start school. I wanted them in their little dresses, knocking on the gate on the first day of school. And I was always worried I might not be able to see that, but I'd been so lucky that I got to experience that. And so by that time that I had to let go of my ovaries, I felt I was on a good home run of surviving this, of getting to my five years, of getting to my 10 years. And then I thought, how am I going to survive? What about my bones? What about my heart? What about my brain? What about my spiritual health? What about me? How do I want to wake up every morning? And I just needed someone to say, we're going to be here for you. And that service for me was available on the national health system. Um, it's a clinic, part of a big hospital in London. And although the waiting lists are long, we have access to that. And I really want to empower everyone to go and seek the help because the help is out there. It's just at the moment, we have to be the person who puts it together. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. Talk to me about your menopause symptoms. Um, when you had your surgically induced menopause, I'm guessing you come out of that operation. And I, I actually have to be totally honest with you. I don't know much about what that then entails in terms of a response mm. to that operation and what life after having that operation would look like. Can you talk to me about how that journey was coming, you know, off the operating table, having to re-enter back into life, having that recovery process? And, and then I guess as a result, what your menopause then looked like? Yeah. And I think the biggest difference is when menopause is onset as a result of your cancer treatment, or in my case, by surgery, it's often much more intense and much more quick. It's suddenly there. It's like shouts at you. <laughs> and so waking up from surgery, your hormones plummet from one moment to the next into nothing, your sex hormones. And a woman in a natural healthy woman might go through perimenopause for 10 years, sometimes longer. And although it can be really hard and it's like this crazy up and down, the roller coaster of hormones, it's a more gradual decline. Um, I had really weird symptoms at first. It was um, racing heart. At first, I thought it was actually the, maybe the general anesthetic. So I woke up and I had this really pounding and racing heart, um, but it didn't go away after a few days. And so we now put it 
put two and two together and it's um, heart palpitations are a symptom of the menopause or perimenopause. I had extremely itchy skin. Um, but to the point where you think, people might think it's just itchy skin, but I literally was scratching my shins and calves so much that my skin turned all sore and was really open and raw. I just couldn't stop it. Antihistamine didn't touch it. A burning mouth. And again, it sounds like, oh, it's just a burning mouth. It's like you've scalded your mouth and your tongue on a very hot cup of tea. But all the time, every day, day and night, eating didn't become easy. And I'm such a foodie and I love preparing food. And it, that made me go off my food, which then again, made me think I'm not doing the best I can for myself. And so that anxiety started to creep in. So where I then didn't look after myself with my food so much because my taste buds had changed because of my burning mouth syndrome, I then thought, oh my gosh, now I'm going to get hot flushes. I won't be able to sleep because I'm not eating well. And this vicious cycle of anxiety came in. Um, so initially I thought my symptoms were very much physical. And then about nine months after my um, surgery, we sat on a family holiday. And at that point, life seemed perfect. Um, my parents and, you know, like with many people's extended families, there's always something going on. My parents were in a good place. We were back at home in case people are wondering about my accent. I'm Austrian. Um, I was there with my husband and my children. Life was good. Everywhere I looked around me, there was no huge building side drama, dilemma. Um, and I had no feeling. I knew I should be feeling so grateful and I had no feeling, N not a feeling of depression. I didn't feel sad. I wasn't feeling like crying. I had no feeling. I was removed from myself and I was removed from everyone else. I'm the biggest cuddler. Like if, you know, you and I meet, I will give you the biggest hug. I love hugging people. Um, I smother my children all the time in hugs and cuddles. I hardly had that in me. I had to remind myself to create that physical touch. And that really, really, really upset me because I realized that I'd done so well. I'd made, I'd put so much effort into recovery, into my mental health and my physical health. And I felt really sad that I had lost the connection to myself. Um, and so I think for me, my physical symptoms came first and then my mental, emotional symptom came second, or until I realized them, it took a while. And then anxiety was huge. My health anxiety since cancer really has been through the roof. I've tried to manage it from medication to counseling through loads and loads of different things. And sometimes it gets me and it takes over. And I think menopause compounded that a little bit for me, made it more intense stopped it from me being able to tackle it and manage it quite as well. And it became quite intrusive at times. Just to touch on that final point, because I, I, first of all, I totally sympathize with that numbness feeling. I mean, it sounds like you just almost, yeah, you know, describe it as not like not even being at the point where you could burst into tears, but, but just feeling nothing. And I, I can't imagine how hard that must have felt, especially when you want to look around you and go, gosh, life is so great. I should be so grateful to actually go, I feel nothing. That must have been really, really scary. Um, but on the health anxiety point, I just, just from a personal 
perspective, it's something that I've, you know, had experiences with over the last however many years, to be honest. And I completely understand what you mean about it becoming intrusive at, at points to the point where it's it's completely destabilizing. Like it can just take over and one day you're fine and the next you are, you know, completely thrown. And I I just want to say that I really empathize with you on that. I know what that feels like and and mine doesn't come after a, a cancer diagnosis, but I think that it must be even more heightened after what you've gone through. And I just, yeah, I think that we actually had a brilliant guest on the podcast um, who specialized in health anxiety. I'll send you a link to it after this. Um, and it's a really good listen. No, and you know what? I, I also don't think there should be a hierarchy. Like I now, and in the last 10 years of working with lots of people and especially women, we often think it's okay if we have a reason for how we're feeling or our anxiety. And sometimes people don't have a big life trauma like I had, and we can have severe health anxiety. And it is just what it is. I think one of the most important things I've learned and recognized, who am I today? How do I wake up? What am I dealing with? (laughs) What crap does life throw at me today? And then I'm going to try and tackle it to the best of my ability. And sometimes it's quite good to not evaluate, like, are you feeling like this because you've had a really difficult event? Or are you feeling like this just because you are? Because sometimes when we always try and find reason, it becomes even more difficult to navigate or it has done for me. And I think it's really okay. People go through breakups and it breaks their world. People have, you know, financial problems and they feel so stopped in their tracks by their anxiety. And it's really important to say that everyone, whatever people are recognizing and feeling is totally okay. And we always deserve help and we always deserve wanting to feel better. I love that message. And I I do think you're right. I think there's something about, especially as women, us minimizing our pain and our anxiety and our worry and almost writing it off as, but mine's not as bad as this person, or I shouldn't be feeling this because look around me, I've got all this great stuff, you know? And I think that I, I totally agree with what you say. And sometimes, you know, I can find myself giving that advice to other people and then totally ignoring it when it comes to myself. You know, I'll say to my friends, oh, it's okay. You know, it's okay if you feel bad or whatever. You don't need to have a reason. Um, But yeah, you're right that I guess sometimes we can minimize our own stuff because we don't feel deserving of help. And, And as you said, everyone deserves help. My next question is really around how you transitioned from I guess going through your own thing and having to deal with that journey of, of menopause, of, of life post-cancer, and then channeling those energies into your campaigning um, that you now do and raising awareness within the cancer and menopause space. What do you think are some of the things that need to happen? You know, you spoke previously to the point that, um, you know, you don't, you didn't feel the support was there. It might have been that it existed, but it wasn't given to you. So in terms of what you think needs to happen to better support those who are going through a similar journey, what would you say are the things that you most want if you had a hit list of like, these are things <laughs> that I think need to happen to help every woman that that is potentially experiencing what I did? What would those things be? Mm. I think often it, whenever we navigate anything, especially in our space, it's the lack of preparation that gets us. So women often don't know that menopause after cancer is going to be such a big thing and sometimes for years to come. Then it's the lack of acknowledgement because so many cancer survivors and myself, and we've just done it in our conversation, you kind of think you should be doing better than you are. I often thought I'm not going to moan about my burning tongue and about all of these symptoms because I'm so lucky I'm alive. I'm not going to bother my GP now with 
those symptoms, but they were debilitating to me and my doctor should have known or my feelings of, you know, anxiety and depression, for example. And then it's the lack of support. It's really tackling those three, the preparation, then the acknowledgement and then the support. And in an ideal world, the NHS would just have, you know, a few more 20 billion pounds for all of us, but that's not going to happen. And in the meantime, I think it's very much about educating the patient. And I'd love for all of them to come into our support groups, listen to the Menopause and Cancer podcast. We run so many workshops because everyone navigates problems differently, right? Health crises. And one thing I did and one thing I have always done is create community around me. So I thought, it can't just be me. Surely there are more people uh, in a similar situation. So when I set up my first Facebook group, for example, it was very much me wanting to know from others, how do you do this thing, menopause after cancer? And I was quite surprised that within a few weeks, with thousands of women in that group already, and they're all going, no support, non-dis, da-da-da-da. And it was brilliant. It was a big brain dump. And I thought, oh my gosh, no one has a clue. And so for me, it's very much about creating communities. And when women come together with shared experience, I always say magic happens, whether it's in the yoga studio and I'm teaching 10 people or whether it's a workshop and there's 150 people on Zoom or like five people in the kitchen somewhere, whatever it is, magic happens when we share our experiences and when we can be truthful. Just yesterday, I ran a workshop and a lady came in who'd never spoken to anyone else affected by cancer and menopause. She was two years in to her cancer diagnosis because she was diagnosed in lockdown. Her treatment was very removed. There's never a support group. And it was a really lonely journey for that woman. And so initially I created communities. And so I think people need to stop barking up the wrong tree. You know, if hormone replacement therapy, for example, isn't an option for you, we need to tune in to the people who give us other options. It's no good just because there's a narrative out there at the moment. And it's really important for womanhood and society. If that's not our story, we need to go and look elsewhere. So it's seeking the right community. And what I then really thought was most important is bringing the experts into that community. So most of our work now is bringing top menopause specialists from the NHS and have them speak to the women in our community. So we bridge that gap between the experts, the women that need the help, and we can sort of facilitate the growth and the change that way. That is amazing. And I I totally agree with you on the sense of community. Community is everything. It's, you know, it's especially as women, I think it's what we do best. We we create communities. And I think that for you to be able to um, leverage that platform and utilize your connections to be able to help however many women you are, thousands of women, it sounds like that is just, oh, it must be amazing. For women who are going on that journey, something that you spoke about earlier and actually made a note to pick up on this was this idea of self-advocating and having confidence in your own voice in the medical space. It's actually something that we've covered a couple of times on the podcast before about being able to have the confidence to voice your feelings and concerns and have a two-way conversation with a medical professional rather than just a a one-way kind of, this is what's going to happen. And I say that with with total understanding that there's such a spectrum in terms of people's experiences in the health space, right? Yours was, for the most part, you said good on the NHS. Um, There are some people who have excellent experiences and there are some people who don't. So I guess just from a broader perspective, if someone wants to navigate that journey and be able to confidently self-advocate for how they're feeling and what they're going through, what are some of the tips that you think women should should learn on that, you know, to, to that point? And we have a real problem with women. Our hormones make it very complicated. We haven't been part of many studies. Just look at heart health, for example. Much of the information we have is done on men. 
And so we've got plenty of catching up to do. And that coupled with often our feeling that we're a burden and we don't want to be a burden, we have a lot of learning to do as patients and women as well. And in general, whatever women are navigating, and we know it from endometriosis, for example, it's a condition that often goes undiagnosed for up to 10 years. This is crazy. These women really suffer, like all of the women in our menopause and cancer community, for example. It's a two-pronged, multifaceted approach that we all need to adapt to become really healthy in how we want to live and navigate our health problems, issues, but also future-proofing ourselves you know, so that we grow old well into our 50s, 60s, and all the way into our 90s. And that two-pronged approach is really having a good relationship with our doctor. And I wonder how many people listening to our conversation right now are thinking, I haven't been to the GP in years. I don't even know who my GP is. I don't even know how to access a general practitioner. But by finding someone that you click with, maybe you could ask at your doctor's surgery, who is the best person here in helping me with women's health issues? There's usually someone at a doctor's practice who is brilliant at giving knee injections, and there'll be someone who knows lots about women's hormones. And so it's tapping to the right, into the right person and having that relationship and really pretending this is a two-way thing, not pretending um, that we're taking their time and we've only got seven minutes. It's really thinking you are going to become part of my healthcare team and, and making sure that we really see it as a collaboration. And the multifaceted approach, I feel, comes from my real believe that no one thing I've ever done since my cancer diagnosis was ever going to be the thing that helped me the most. It was always a combination of many different things. And whether they included medical treatments that doctor prescribed for me, whether they were hormonal or non-hormonal, whether they were part of complementary medicine and therapies like acupuncture or cognitive behavior therapy or yoga or mindfulness, whether they also included stress relief in different ways and looking after my mental health, it was tapping into all of those different modalities at different times. I think when I did myself the biggest injustice is when I got stuck on one path. So when I thought my diet is going to cure me and fix me of all of my problems, my mental health was actually at my lowest. I could have served you and Gordon Ramsay and everyone out there and people would have thought, wow, that's amazing food and she eats like that seven days a week. I did. My mental health was shockingly bad. And so I knew I needed to include other modalities to help me feel better and regain some health. And I needed to keep the open mindset. And whatever people are navigating, whether it's a, a different chronic disease, whether it's cancer, whether it's perimenopause, whether it's like you say, your health anxiety, I'm assuming you also had to adopt an approach that wasn't always the same. We've got to try different things, right? Because you never know the thing you're going to do next might be the thing that really helps you right now. But you've got to try it. You've got to try and dig it out and find it so you give yourself that chance. That is such a lovely answer. And you're absolutely right that I always say this about exercise, you know, like I, I was literally having this conversation on my podcast last week about a lot of people seeing exercise as like the best thing that they should be doing. They should just do more and more and more of it. And actually, you know, more recently, I've been really trying to have this conversation around us being able to have too much of a good thing. You can do too much exercise. You can eat 
too much broccoli and have loads of sulfur or you do you know what I mean that there's 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 got to be a point where we just find a balance and where we look at widening our toolkit of coping strategies for life not just for specific things but but looking into this toolbox and saying within mine I've got breath work I've got exercise I've got being in nature I've got being with friends I've got you know eating well and all these all these things that lay up you know, my coping strategies and sometimes they work brilliantly. And sometimes, you know, I might need to uh, take some, you know, medication. That's also fine. Do you know what I mean? But just being able to be really expansive with, with what you're willing to, to have in that toolbox rather than saying, well, this is the thing that I need to do and making it very um, kind of, you know, narrow-minded and binary. And I really, I really love that answer. When I decided that I was worth it to put the effort and the time and the love and the care into myself, that I was worth that investment, it kind of started to flow because all of the things we've just talked about, they require a level of commitment and we don't always have the headspace for that. They require financial, maybe time resources, financial or time resources, because you've got to step on the mat to do yoga, you've got to hit that workout, you've got to put the half hour aside. I've got to plan my meals. All of that comes with a lot of effort. And I recognize that not at every time in my past, I've had that time and energy for myself. And I did have to make a commitment because initially it was all about the kids. And for anyone who's a parent, they might relate to that. It's much easier to care for other people than it is to care for yourself. But when I had made that commitment that I would never stop trying for myself, and that doesn't mean I felt well over the last 10 years, every single day of my life. I had phases where I felt really awful. But I always knew I'm going to continue to try and find something else that might be my next thing. And I'm so glad I had this open mindset and kept opening doors and windows and tried and tried and tried because I think that was probably where I served myself the most. And I hope that anyone listening to this who thinks I've, I've gone through my resources, I don't think there's anything else I haven't tried. I really want to challenge everyone on that thinking there might be something else out there that might be your next thing. And you know what? It's so exciting when that happens. Like I'm still so giddy with excitement thinking back when I did yoga and when that became part of my life. Like my first downward dog, I had a wig on, I had no toenails, no fingernails because I'd lost everything through chemotherapy. Gosh, I had was more anxious about losing my wig <laughs> and showing off my finger and toenails than about anything else. But when it clicked, it was wonderful. Before then, I poo-pooed yoga and I thought, it's not going to do anything for me. And sometimes you need other people to make you, help you, inspire you. And that's where social media is brilliant. Um, your recipes, all of your workouts, everything, it's just brilliant. And we need to bring people and things into our lives, into our social media that make us feel good, right? That give us those opportunities that inspire us to do better for ourselves. Absolutely. And and speaking of community and bringing things into our lives, I would love for you to share where people can find more about the communities that you create and the help that you give to women who might be listening to this and going through a similar thing or know someone who's going through a similar thing. Can you share where people might be able to engage with those, those communities? Yeah, sure. So we host the Menopause and Cancer podcast and we go out weekly with amazing experts. So if someone just needs to learn more about their options of what they can do, 
as a cancer patient going through menopause. That is the world's only resource at the moment where you can find all of that information by experts. And I so enjoy hosting those sessions every week. And our website is menopauseandcancer.org. We have loads of resources written by doctors. We run workshops on different topics, uh, create community. And from there, you can find links to the Facebook group and all of those places. So come on in and let's mix and mingle. We talk a lot about dry vaginas and things like that. So <laughs> brace when you come in, brace yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that it's there's something to be said for being open and honest and, and sharing in similar experiences with other women. So I'm sure that they are wonderful communities and I hope that they're helpful for anyone who might need them. Danny, this has been a really interesting chat. It's been an area that I have never covered on the podcast and I'm really grateful for you sharing your experience or something that I know must have been incredibly difficult, but but has been also a, a life affirming thing for you, something that's really changed your 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 path and how you approach life. And it's been really lovely to hear that. So thank you so much for your time. We'll share the links to all of those things in the show notes. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group